Brendan Nicholson speaks to Charles Parton about UK-China relations and ways to approach China. The strong do what they have the power to do, and the weak accept what they have to accept, and that's precisely what Yang Jiechou said in 2010. Michael Shoebridge and Dr Marcus Hellyer discuss Australia's submarine program. So Marcus, should the government cancel the attack class program? And Bart Hogaveen and Dr Hung Le Tu discuss digital investment opportunities for the Australian government in Southeast Asia. I'm s- suggesting to invest in digital development of the region. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In the past week, the cases of Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver have been heard in China. The Canadians have been in prison since their 2018 arrest, which was widely perceived as an act of hostage diplomacy by Beijing. Brendan Nicholson speaks to Charles Parton, Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and career diplomat and China expert. Charles provides an overview of how the CCP operates, what China wants from Australia and the UK, and the need for like-minded democracies to band together to prevent the use of coercive and hostage diplomacy. Charles, thanks very much for the conversation today. It's, um, it's great to catch up. Few people know more about the situation involving China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and where it's likely to go than you do. You know, could you give us a rundown on, on what you, how you see the situation at the moment? I think it's worth starting, before we get into the detail of the questions, Brendan, I'm just looking quickly at how China conducts its foreign relations, uh, because uh, it's very much a, a country at the moment that, that uses its economic heft, uh, either in a positive way, that, in other words, cooperate with us and you get the benefits from it, or in a negative way, uh, don't cooperate and you start getting threats about the withdrawal of that economic benefit. So that's one thing that I think that we need to bear in mind as we talk. Um, Another aspect of China's economic, uh, of uh, international relations, is its propensity to use divide and rule as a tool. I think we should also be pretty conscious of its, the importance of its foreign uh, overseas propaganda, Weixuan. It uses a, a lot of that to convince us that the rise of China is inevitable and irresistible. And I think we should also be conscious at the back of our minds of the whole United Front strategy of isolating the main enemy, the Americans, and moving the rest of us, the smaller countries, from the hostile to the neutral and eventually to the friendly camp and all the the, the sort of uh, methods of doing that. So, uh, I mean, overall, I would say when I look at, I'm a classicist and I think of Thucydides, but I don't think of the, of the Thucydides trap. I think of uh, the Melian dialogue where Thucydides says, the strong do what they have the power to do and the weak accept what they have to accept. And that's precisely what Yang Jiechou said in 2010 in Hanoi to the Singaporean foreign minister when he said, uh, we're a big country and you're a small country. And that's just a fact. Uh, I think there's a lot of that behind China's uh, diplomacy. Uh, so the interesting question is whether Xi Jinping can get away with that bullying and whether he really does believe that the China, China's rise is inevitable and irresistible. Just a couple of quick remarks, too, about what governments need to do. I and mean, I think governments have come to accept that China is not going to evolve like us. Uh, that's a change from a, a few decades ago. I think governments need to accept that there is a values war, even if, and, but not a cold war. It's not like Russia. China is not Russia. Um, but we do have very different political systems, value systems, and economic systems. And we can talk about that, but we need to accept it. Uh, uh, and I think we need to emphasize that 
it's both sides that have the need for good good relations, not not just us. We're not always the demanders. Governments need to, to have that in mind. And thirdly, I'd, as a sort of introductory remark, I'd say, well, governments really should um, do a number of things in advance of considering their policies. Uh, and the first step is to educate themselves and have a, a, a better knowledge of China. Um, the nature of the Communist Party, and I always talk about the Communist Party rather than China, because as Xi Jinping reminds us, the party leads everything. So you need to know in detail how it operates, what its overall aims are. Uh, you need to know what the Communist Party wants from a certain country and its relations. And we always look and first they say, well, what's our strategy towards China? But the first step is actually to say, well, what's China's strategy towards us? And we don't look at that enough. And the other really important question is to research how much is our country, Australia or the UK, really dependent upon China, whether it's for jobs, supply chains, the areas of exports, investment, in our case, financial services, students, tourism, etc. Because I think in very many cases, it's an awful lot less than interested parties would have us believe. Uh, and we don't sufficiently consider uh, the reliance that China has and, and the needs it has on, on, on us. It may not be an export-driven economy, but it's still very important to jobs and stability within China, and it needs our science and technology. So it is actually a mutual relationship and not one where we have to um, do preemptive kowtows, as some governments have. Charles, that's fascinating. And just bouncing off that, is China inevitably malevolent towards the West? It would be easy to to to, to say so uh, in in when in the sense that when you look at what Xi Jinping said in his first Politburo speech, he talks about Chinese socialism gaining the superior position over Western capitalism. Uh, there are very frequent uh, references throughout uh, all Chinese political discourse to uh, hostile foreign powers and and frequently uses the the word jongdo uh, the struggle against against the west but i think that 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 would be uh, overegging it there is uh, many things that we have uh, interests in common in terms of 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 global goods and and also uh, you know I, I i go back to this distinction between the party and china uh, out there there's a whole china that is uh, a matter of people-to-people relations. Uh, Chinese people have, have very good pression, impressions of abroad. Uh, I mean, if you look at the recent surveys, it's some, some approval of, of, of the UK, for instance, amongst Chinese people is something like 81%. So, so I, I don't think that it is uh, a matter of hostility. Uh, we, we should uh, always, I think, in our relations, try to maximise the good because China's immensely important player in the world. Um, so let's not approach it too negatively, but let's approach it with our eyes open to the way that the Communist Party is um, thinking and manoeuvring. Charles, Australia is one of many countries that has had nationals detained in China, often for long periods without charges being laid or on charges that appear to be trumped up. One such individual so targeted as a Chinese-born Australian television news anchor, Cheng Lai, and uh, Canadians Michael Spaber and Michael Kovrig were arrested soon after their country detained a senior executive of the Chinese tech giant Huawei at the request of the United States. How do you believe the nations that have been targeted in this way can best deal with this tactic of hostage-taking is coordinated action an answer? And what is your view on China's declaration against the use of arbitrary detention? 
Oh, good questions. I, I, I mean, first of all, I think we should distinguish between what I might call commercial kidnappings and hostage taking and, and political. So uh, there are plenty of cases that many national, nationalities have suffered where for commercial disputes, people uh, are not allowed to leave China or, or, or suffer worse. Um, and then there are the cases like the ones that you mentioned, which have a, a very political um, nature to them. I think that the first rule of any bullying or hostage taking is you, you mustn't give way. But the, the moment you give way, you simply validate the tactic and you're going to receive it more in, in, in future. The next question is, you know, does quiet diplomacy work or should it be loud diplomacy? I think that probably certainly in the early months, uh, it, it doesn't help to, to to make a large noise about it, but to have quiet representations uh, with, with China to find out what's going on uh, and, and see if you can re- resolve the matter. But I think there's been too great a tendency in the past just to let this sort of thing ride and keep quiet about it. And certainly after, I don't know, three to six months, I think countries should make a lot of noise about it. When it's a commercial kidnapping, as it were, as I defined it, then I think you need to harp on to the government about the damage it's doing to the investment environment, the concept of of, of rule of law uh, and and trade relations. Uh, When it's political, I think we should raise these things at the UN. Of course, China can veto them, but it makes a lot of, um, I think, uh, shaming noise. Uh, They should be raised on all occasions whenever ministers or meetings occur with the other side. Uh, we should expose the, the hypocrisy, the double standards um, of, of the sort of Chinese propaganda. And I think it, we should, wherever we can, let it be seen that it will affect certain of our relations or initiatives that we might, Chinese initiatives that we might join. Should we be coordinated in our action? Definitely. As I said at, at the start, China loves to divide and, and, and rule. Uh, I think that like-minded democracies, um, it's a better term than the West, uh, that's too Cold War, and sometimes they're not just democracies, should should, should get together and, and, and act in unity. It may not be your national that's been taken on this occasion, but it could be next time. Uh, and, and, and give mutual support. It's much easier said than done. I mean, Full marks to Canada for the declaration against the use of arbitrary detention. Uh, it's a good initiative. It, it draws attention to the abuses, uh, and that attention is is useful. Uh, it tells, I hope, the, the, the CCP that it's not going to be cost free. But is it a solution to the problem? Um, no, not in itself. It's it's a small building block. Uh, ultimately, I'm afraid the only real tactic is to show that over a long period of time this sort of hostage taking does not work. And, and in the case of the two Michaels, one of whom I know I know and is a friend of mine, uh, I have to say that much as I'd like to see Michael Kovrick out as soon as possible, uh, I think that the, the Canadian government is entirely right um, not to submit for the sake of future hostage taking. China has demonstrated that it has a fairly unsophisticated approach to divide and rule. You know, we, we can try, the nations of the world can try multilaterally to manage the relationship, but will such collective action make China rethink such practices? Or does the Xi government believe that China is now too powerful to need to be concerned? Well, I think that the Communist Party has got away with uh, its behaviour for so long that it's going to take time for any behaviours on our part to, to change its attitude. I mean, it's very difficult to say precisely what Xi Jinping does or not believe. Uh, I mean, he may he may believe that they're too powerful to be concerned because they haven't received any pushback so far or very uh, insufficient. But at the same time, 
I'm not convinced that, that Xi Jinping is, is, uh, and the Communist Party are 10 foot tall. I think there are many signs domestically that they, they lack confidence in, in, in this inevitable and irresistible rise, so-called. Uh, I mean, you don't have the sort of enormous security and surveillance systems controlling your, your, your people domestically if you're that confident and they're that confident. And for all that Xi Jinping bangs on about globalization, uh, and uh, and on the other hand, he, he, he talks. He's talking much more about self sufficiency. But I think he knows that that the world is becoming much more globalized, and he does have to rely on people. So I think it's up to us to show him um, that he's got to put his money where his mouth mouth is on that one. Uh, I think we can change the reality, uh, and 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 it may, but it may take time. Charles, um, looking at China's behaviour more broadly in our region, the Indo Pacific. Beijing has made it very clear that it wants to deal with individual countries on disagreements on a strictly bilateral basis. And this goes back to your comments about divide and rule. It has refused to adhere to the rulings of international judicial bodies on issues such as its claims on low-lying reefs in the South China Sea. Can the world ensure that might does not become a de facto right? And can it ensure that smaller countries in this area are not picked off one by one. Well, it's 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 very difficult because uh, China has indeed used its economic heft with smaller countries, but again, it's partly a process of education. I mean, if Chinese uh, money and help is for the good, then then of course small countries are absolutely right to accept it. But they need to look at the the long term effects of <clears throat> of taking. Uh, loans and help from China, and I think that we need to to help those countries by giving them help, for instance, with with pro- project assessments on 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 the financial conditions or the environmental uh, impact assessments on that. I think we as countries probably need to get our own acts in order uh, and set a set a better example, and we certainly need to be better, uh, if I may use the word, at, at, at propaganda, at, 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 at public diplomacy, at at showing um, other countries that actually we have been every bit as good uh, at, at helping them as, as China has. I mean, here in Europe, if you look at what the Chinese propaganda on 17 plus one, the Central European, Central Eastern European countries, actually the EU provides far, far greater help to those countries, but you wouldn't believe it from the propaganda that, that comes out. So I think we need to be much, much better at that. And I think we also need to be seen by the world to be upholding international law. When China goes against treaties signed at the UN, as it has done with Hong Kong, or when it ignores um, in the law of the sea in, in South China Sea, then I think it's absolutely right that there are countries, whether it's Australia, the UK, uh, the US, France, Germany, whatever, call that out at the UN and do send our ships as they're entitled to do on, on the conditions they're entitled to do through the South China Sea or the East China Sea. So, yes, I think these 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 measures are are, are not in themselves going to change things tomorrow, but but I think it's important that we stick to our principles and show other other countries that we're doing so. Look, Australia has been proactive in, for example, barring Huawei from building its five G network in Australia. And in calling for an international investigation into the origins of the COVID virus, China is Australia's main trading partner, and it's responded with restrictions on our imports 
including coal, barley, wine, wheat, wool, and lobsters. How do individuals, nations, deal with that sort of action by China? Well, it goes straight back to what I said right at the start, the need for governments to understand what's really going on. I think this business, I mean, here in the UK, you know, China will, will threaten our exports, our investment, uh, the financial services in the city, tourism and, and, and students, a bit like Australia. And I think we need to, governments need to look at that in cold light. Uh, to what degree actually are exports affected? I mean, as I understand it, China's exports to China for 2020 are actually increased over 2021, uh, over 2019. If you look at UK when it was in the doghouse in 2012, over the next few years, its exports to China rose, ditto Norway, ditto Korea. So yes, let's not deny that some sectors will be hit, that's for sure, particularly when they're symbolic, like Norwegian salmon or or, or uh, Australian wine. Uh, they'll be hit if they're replaceable. Wine can be gotten from anywhere around the world. And they will be hit if they can inconvenience farmers for a year or sowing, or sowing season. But then it comes back. Uh, I mean, I understand that China's uh, quota for Australian wool for this next year is, is higher uh, than it was last year. So I think that, that exporters need to uh, encourage diversity and governments may need to tide over farmers for a year or so before China, which has a food security problem and has to import food, comes back to the table, as it did, has done with, with Canada and, and, and is doing with, with Australia. So, you know, these things are not nearly as uh, fearsome as some try to represent. I mean, people keep saying here in the UK, and they do in Australia, well, you be careful, otherwise there'll be no investment. Well, hold on a second. Here in the UK, the stock of Chinese investment uh, as a percentage of our total investment is 0.2%. Uh, how many jobs are actually created? It's far fewer than, than big companies like Huawei uh, like, like to say. So on the other hand, also remember that China has needs. It needs food. It needs our science and technology. It needs your resources. It needs our services. So uh, it, it's not a one-way street. Uh, look at it in the cold light of day. Get unbiased research. Uh, decide on the size of the threat and make your uh, policies according. Charles Barton, thanks very much. Pleasure, Brendan. The Department of Defence's attack-class submarine program has been highly scrutinised. With media outlets reporting, a commission review may result in the government walking away from its partnership with France's naval group. Michael Shoebridge and Dr Marcus Hellier weigh in on the contentious program and what it means for the future of Australia's maritime security and defence capabilities. Well, Marcus, um, talk around town has been crazy about the submarine program, um, with one big idea being there's a secret review underway and... Uh, Scott Morrison may well cancel the attack class, the um, $89 billion, uh, $80 billion, sorry, the $80 billion well, submarine what, what program. What day is it today? It could be 90. What's the exchange rate look like? So, yeah. so um, you don't think that the government's close to cancelling this program, uh, and why is that? Well, yeah, I, I can't see it happening. I mean, unless there's something seriously gone wrong that, they know about and we don't know about. I can't see it happening. You know, it's interesting how, you know, the, the submarine program bubbles along under the radar and then every six months or so sort of erupts into the public space. So we've had our latest round of public eruption there, as you said, with some reports that the government has commissioned a study and it's considering cancelling. I just can't see it cancelling. You know, 
in this country, conservative governments build their reputation and their mandate to rule on being good economic managers. So if they basically turned around and said that they'd messed up the biggest public sector project in the history of Australia, it doesn't look good for their credibility. Similarly, I can't see Defence recommending to the government to suddenly cancel it since they've been advising the government that this is the capability that they want, it's the ship, the, the boat they want. And to suddenly turn around and say they don't want it after all, I think would destroy Defence's credibility with government mm. for a very long time. Well, you're right. I think Defence is the dog that caught the car here. They've been given everything they wanted, a huge amount of national treasure, a huge amount of time to get it, a submarine program being run by and for submariners. Uh, to say that was all a horrible mistake, I just can't see Russell Hill doing that. So, Marcus, should the government cancel the attack class program? Well, that, that is the fundamental question, and it's a lot of people have asked that. I get asked it all the time. Bottom line is I don't really know because there's just not enough data out there to really have an informed opinion on that. Uh, you know, Defence isn't releasing a lot of data on this. It holds its cards very close to its chest. It keeps telling us at Senate estimates hearings, for example, that everything's on track. But, you know, the, the underlying data is hard to find. And, you know, an example of that, of the non-disclosure, was a very extraordinary exchange at the start of February. So the mm. Senate Economics References Committee has been holding a long inquiry into naval shipbuilding. It summoned defence officials to say, why haven't you been disclosing to us the information we've been asking for? And defence basically answered and, and said, well, the government isn't letting us. It's a government mm. problem. I must admit, I found that extraordinary, that hearing, in two ways. And the first one was that senators were making the point to the defence officials that when, as senators, they'd asked for information from defence about the submarine program, they'd been told they couldn't have it. And when they'd applied under separate freedom of information legislation, you know, as Mr. Patrick, not Senator Patrick, initially the defence officials had refused to supply the information. But under the FOI challenge process, an external decision maker rejected defence's reasons for not giving the information publicly and made them hand it over. And despite that, the officials were still saying they would not give that same information to the Senate. And the, the thing I find extraordinary about that, apart from the black comedy, is that there seems to be a misunderstanding of accountability. The officials seem to think it was enough to say that their minister didn't want the information provided. And they failed to understand that as public officials, they have a separate legal accountability to the Senate itself. And the Senate has some powers. They're latent but powers to get those officials to cooperate, and it has nothing to do with the minister. I just think, why should the Senate be forced to use those powers in the first place? When the defence and the government don't, don't disclose this information, it automatically raises the question of what are they trying to hide? It doesn't help their case of trying to win the Australian public over to support this That was the second program. extraordinary thing, wasn't it, that this largest investment program in Australia's history, forget about in defence history, in Australia's history, is not the subject of better communication and disclosure publicly, but certainly to the parliament. Now, getting back to the submarines, though, 
if the attack class is going to keep doing what it does as a big costly project until at least 2035 before the first results come out, seems to me the Defence Force has to love the submarine they have. Uh, there's six columns. Uh, they are world-class submarines, but keeping them world-class until the 2030s and 2040s is going to be a costly, risky undertaking, but an essential one. Mm -hmm. That's right. So it's pretty clear that even if the attack class program delivers as planned, the last columns will be in service well into the 2040s. And in fact, we'll continue to have more columns submarines than attack class submarines, probably until about 2040. So they will be the core of your undersea warfighting capability. So by that time, they'll be you know well into their 30s and possibly approaching 40 years old. So we know that there is this life of type extension that is in Defence's uh, investment plan. Uh, again, at Senate estimates, they've referred to the kinds of things they're considering doing. And it looks like a pretty extensive kind of program. So they want to replace the main motors, want to replace the diesel generators, electrical systems, replace the periscopes with optronics. That all sounds good if you're trying to keep it a relevant capability, but then you get into the territory of cost, schedule and technical risk. And essentially, the Collins Life of Type Extension is meant to be a risk mitigator in case of attack class delays, but it looks like itself it's acquiring more and more risk. So yeah, it's an two interesting big one. bundles of risk there. Yeah. Uh, one thing that, that seems to me to be obvious but might prove to be fiendishly difficult is uh, to think about the Swedes as the original uh, intellectual property holders for the Collins class, Cockham's. Uh, with Saab now having that intellectual property. And look at what the Swedes have done to upgrade their own submarines and, in fact, evolve it to a new build, the A-26 class. And what they've done seems to me to be pretty parallel to what we now need to do with the columns. And there have to be a lot of lessons and insights and maybe even systems and approaches uh, that the Swedes have that we could really benefit from. Yeah, it's clear looking at the Swedes that um, a lot of the systems they did on the upgrade to their existing submarines are going to flow into the new design. You sort of get the sense that that's where our Defence Department is thinking in terms of the life of type extension, some of those technologies flowing into the attack class or indeed flowing from the attack class back into the Collins. Again, that all makes sense, but again, one of the issues we're going to have is just having enough boats in the water. There's that old kind of three for one rule. So if you've got six columns, you'll have two out of the water at any one time. You'll have four available, but really only two are able to go on operations. So that whole calculus of just having two boats available for operations relies on the sustainment system humming like a well-tuned machine. So if that life of type extension starts blowing out in terms of schedule because you're trying to do too much work with too much risk, then we're really going to have a problem of keeping boats in the water. If you don't have boats in the water, you can't train your next generations of submariners. Mm. And we know how hard it is to recover when you've had that problem. So at the moment, Collins is really delivering available submarines. However, you're right, keeping these submarines capable is essential and they've got a life well beyond when the first attack class turns up. You look at what the Swedes have done with their upgrades. They have vertical launch cells able to be inserted as an additional module into the hull. And for their new design, they've got these multi-mission portals, which are 
purpose-built to allow larger UUVs that won't fit through even the biggest torpedo uh, tube to be launched and operated from the boats. Mm -hmm. So there's a path there that we probably need for columns uh, and certainly for the attack class. Well, it doesn't seem like that is the path that Defence wants to take with either columns or the attack class. From what we know of the, the attack class, it won't have vertical launch cells. It seems like it's not going to have the, the mega launch tube and it seems like at the moment it's going to have your traditional lead-acid batteries. So, you know, it's it's interesting that other navies are doing things and have already done things that we say are too, too risky to deliver in 15 years' time in the future. So, again, it's, it's hard to get your head around that. Yes. Well, you know, if there's one thing I would love to see with our undersea capabilities, it's us loving the one we're with, uh, which is the columns, and realising that despite the risk, invest, investing in a comprehensive upgrade is the best path for the next 20 years, and also embracing some of these unmanned underwater systems that we know are needed now for undersea capability, but certainly being proficient using them and teaming with them will be essential by the time the attack class turns up. Yeah, look, look, I, I agree that there's a lot of risk around columns, a lot of risk around the attack class, so we've got to be looking at other systems, other complementary systems to take some of the, the burden off, off those platforms. Great. Thanks very much, Marcus. In November 2020, the Australian government announced an investment package of around $500 million in economic, development and security initiatives to support the COVID-19 recovery in Southeast Asia. Bart Hogeveen speaks to Dr Hung Le Tu about some of these investments and the opportunities for the Australian government to increase regional engagement through investment in digital initiatives. Hung, we are going to talk about an article or a pitch you published in the latest edition of the Australian Foreign Affairs Journal about how Australia can supercharge its digital engagement with Southeast Asia. Could you describe in a few words what you're pitching? Hi, Bart. Yes, so this is an exercise of creatively thinking about Australia's engagement with its immediate region, which is Southeast Asia, its very important neighbour. As you know, we all talk about great power competition at the moment, um, which is really uh, uh, intensifying during the pandemic. Australia has also started to pay more attention to the region because Southeast Asia is at the epicenter of the great power competition. It's really at the diplomatic and geographical heart of the Indo-Pacific as the language, official language describe it. Um, I was trying to think more creatively what ways that Australia can engage with Southeast Asia in a more productive and future-oriented way. You know that in all this context of great power competition, there's also limitation of resources. Right. Australia's development aid has been declining over the years. And uh, in uh, recent years, we had Pacific step up uh, to the Pacific neighbours. But um, a lot of concerns related to that was a cut of the budget towards aid um, in Southeast Asia and that we are not having enough of resources and attention to Southeast Asia, which is a really much bigger region much more populous with much bigger needs 
And there are more people in Jakarta than in all of the Pacific, uh, just to give you, uh, you know, a, a notion of, of how big. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's right. And also those are very strategically important countries. Um, they are going to grow. Of course, the pandemic complicates that. Uh, pandemic will bring a, a back a little bit of development and bring the development progress back. But by and large, this region will grow. And in by different estimations, in the next couple of decades, some of them will surpass Australia's economies. So we have to think about engagement in a future way, not just in simple traditional ways that have worked before, for example, the development aid. I'm su suggesting to invest in digital development of the region. No, so I want I, I'd like to pick up on I think on two things that you that you mentioned. One is uh, Southeast Asia is uh, what you described as the key competitive area. Um, and just now you say um, the, the the whole COVID pandemic kind of uh, accelerated the development that Southeast Asia is at the, kind of the centerpiece of great power competition. So. How, how does that look in, what, what do you see happening in practice? Yeah, so I started paying attention to the, the technology and digital space in Southeast Asia when we had great um, debate about Huawei and 5G, right? And Australia was very interested also in choices that the regional countries would make. And one of the conclusions that I came to um, with my research on Southeast Asians' views on Huawei and 5G and, and the geopolitics of that was that digital capacity in the region is very uneven, mm -hmm. very, very uneven. Uh, and also consciousness, the, the digital literacy of the region is also very uneven. Uh, so it's it's hard to come. And if you would kind of color that a little bit, what, what, what would that look like? Because yeah, so we, we've got some of the most cyber mature, most that's right. kind of yeah. sophisticated countries and the Almost the least. That's right. Yeah. Singapore, for example, is leading worldwide. It's a, one of the leaders in technology development. It's very serious about its technological future. It in, invests actively and heavily on res, in research and development. It, it sees that it is its future, right? Uh, whereas we, we have countries such as Laos on, on, on Myanmar, which probably will be even worse given uh, the coup and the crisis, where digital uh, literacy and capacity it's relatively very slow and I think um, the uh, economic crisis post-pandemic it induced and political instability will actually only make it worse so the digital gap within the region is is going to be widening too as a result of of the recent year so I think as much as vibrant the region is because it's very young region in terms of population and median it's it has a huge base of digital customers for example Thailand is one of the most active in terms of digital commerce and you know the spendings online the you know citizens are spending a lot of time and money on uh, on online purchases and stuff like that. so it's really the, the future market. Australia has engaged with the region in multiple ways, right? Uh, through, for example, things that you do about um, in, in engaging in workshops, in uh, promoting the UN cyber norms. That's a very important uh, contribution as well, right? Although there's also one point you're criticizing in your pitch saying, well, that's a, a relatively, I mean, small activity focused on a kind of an elite group of government officials. That's right, because we don't have enough 
resources. So my pitch is actually expanding everything that Australia has been already doing, our different arms of government had been doing, whether it's through DFAT, through global uh, uh, cyber uh, initiatives, or CSIRO, who, who has presence in a number of countries in, in the Southeast Asia, and um, actively helping and promoting technology. Um, some of them is also have cyber agenda, not all of them at the moment, but I am arguing to really triple down uh, on the efforts of technology because this is not only for uh, in a sake of engagement and building partnership. It is really investing in Australia's future. The market, as I said, is very vibrant, is, is emerging, is developing very fast. And if there's one solution, of course there isn't, but if there's one thing that countries would bet on um, to come out from the post-COVID-induced crisis is digitalization of their economies. Uh, so we'll see a huge and fast development in this space. Australia is relatively early there. I think it can harness that uh, you know, advantage and really thinking in 20, 30 years onwards, this will be the global hub of innovation and technological uh, advancement. So, you know, Australia wants to tap into those opportunities ahead of the time and be there early. I think uh, that's really the key gist of, of the message that I'm sending with this proposal. I know the resources are scarce, right? Uh, but if Australia is thinking actively of a meaningful engagement program, whether it's equivalent of step up or anything resembling that, I think the digital technological component should be the key one for Southeast Asian engagement. So when you say um, tripling or doubling down on, on current investments, would you be able to kind of say how much is currently investment in the digital and tax base in, in South Asia from Australia? So there are uh, ongoing um, initiatives uh, at the moment, like I said, is different arms of government. Sometimes it's also private actors engaged. But what I'm saying is like it, we need an all of government initiative, such as the Pacific Step Up, right? The Pacific Step Up is a whole of government initiative. Therefore, it can become a big and meaningful because if, uh, you know, counting only on a smaller and individual initiative, yes, there will be some presence of Australia, but it's not uh, branded a big and key signature initiatives. So, for example, it just in the recent um, uh, East Asia Summit, Prime Minister announced over 500 million of package to the region, but that includes a, a lot of things. Uh, includes assistance in accessing the vaccines, assistance in in climate change initiative, but also uh, some of them will also go to digital development and technology. But if you drill down to just the region and what exactly is allocated for Southeast Asia for digital development, it's not that much yet. So I'm advocating to really concentrate efforts and um, it's going to be costly. It's going to be, uh, it needs to be, you know, a big commitment for the whole of government. But um, with uh, this is something that, you know, I think it will really make an impact in the long term because um, we are facing a region of huge potential, but also a big gap at the moment because COVID, for example, created a uh, sudden vacuum, right? So all of a sudden, the need for digital capacity and literacy is so much bigger because of the um, online teaching because of no physical classes or no physical uh, economic activities. So some of the countries and some of the cities are able to meet that need, uh, but 
there are a lot that might be left behind. And um, this is where, you know, Australia's assistant can be helpful with, you know, providing, let's say, computers to the schools, to the remote areas, helping with digital con connectivity um, uh, and, you know, uh, assisting in, in digitalization of education because not everyone can uh, seamlessly transition onto into online teaching this is a, a big gap and if that is missed if that is not addressed we'll we might um face a generation of you know COVID disrupted education generation where that would and uh, in, inevitably affect the development uh, of those uh, of those people if, if you're circling back to um, the, the start of your answer when you talked about this um just over 500 million dollars that was committed in back in november i believe um, and if you drill down, I think it comes to only about 200 or 230 million for all of Asia and of all of Southeast Asia over a period of four years. So if you drill that down to, I think, an annual figure per country, it's um, a, a couple of million Australian dollars, which is... That's I right. That's not and enough. then also focusing on what we've been able to read on, on critical technologies, including 5G deployment, yes, uh, which right. are, of course, extremely expensive um, in, in investments generally. I, I, I really like kind of your suggestion to focus not so much on kind of the high end of the spectrum um, competing in kind of the critical infrastructure or critical technologies, but looking at um, what's the, um, the, I think what's been called kind of the digital divide, how do uh, rural communities and, and marginalized groups also kind of benefit from the digital transformation that are taking place in the region. Yes. Um, but that would kind of imply a, 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 a fairly substantive change of whole, our whole approach to, I think, cyber and critical technologies from looking at kind of the high end spectrum of development to what's really affecting people on the ground and how can you make sure that everyone in all the countries mm -hmm. um, are in a position to reap the benefits of uh, of I think what they mostly call the fourth industrial revolution. That's right. And like you said, you know, if the 5G and Huawei choices were much, very much political. But when you look at the picture in the region with such a gap and different awareness of what safety and cyber safety is in the region, uh, which here, Huawei was mainly circulated around the safety issue, right? But if you have such a different recognition across the region, it's really hard to uh, come to similar positions. So before you ask this kind of big commitment, you know, it, it's really important to educate and have the similar cyber literacy. And uh, just to, to finish off on your last point, Australia doesn't need to reinvent the wheel, you know, ASEAN has master plan of connectivity and digitalization. And Australia, as I said, has been working with the partners in the region. So it's really recognizing the immediate urgent needs uh, as of now, but also the future area of development uh, and doubling down on them early because ASEAN countries target 2025. And this is a very critical five years. So it's good for the whole of government to think about that when they are thinking about meaningful engagement with the region. Yeah, I, that's a, I think a great summary of, of the pitch, um, and um, I, I believe um, your pitch is, uh, should encourage us all to think more um, innovatively and creatively about um, what has been the current engagement so far and how we can really make uh, a difference as, uh, as, as a small but, but meaningful and important country in the region. Um, so I think your to, to sum up, I think your, your your point about focusing on the rural communities or the ones on the other side or the wrong side of the digital divide 
but also changing from uh, a very geopolitical approach to looking at uh, a whole of government approach, um, which includes not just kind of foreign affairs priorities, but also priorities from industry and science, uh, um, science and technology development um, investments. Thanks, Ron, for your <laughs> Thank you, Bert. It was a pleasure. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week.